This is the Pfeffer on Power podcast. I'm your host, Jeffrey Pfeffer. Every other week, we release an episode in which I talk to an interesting person who has used power to accelerate their career. And hopefully you, the listeners, will get some lessons on how to think about and use power in your own lives. Today, we are joined by Philip Mohabir, who works for IMAX and has used my power materials to accelerate his career. But what makes Philip particularly interesting to me and to you is that after he took my online version of this class, he became a coach slash course facilitator for the class, and he continues to work with students over the years to help them become comfortable with the topics and do their doing power project and in fact become more effective in deploying power. So I want to thank Philip for joining us today. And I want to begin, I want to ask him basically two sets of questions. The first question is to just to describe his career a little bit. Secondly, we're going to talk a tiny bit about how he has used power himself to accelerate his career inside of IMAX. And then third, I want him to talk about what he has learned from his coaching experience that can be helpful to you. So thank you for joining us, Philip. Why don't you begin by giving us a brief overview of your career, your education, and your current job? Awesome. Thank you for having me, Professor Pfeffer. I've been at IMAX for over a decade, coming into the organization as it underwent a literal digital transformation. And after scaling rapid expansion of the install base across 85 countries, and in part emboldened by your course, I pursued my MBA. Um, that facilitated an opportunity to move me from operations and into investor relations during these past two years, essentially working for the office of the CEO. Beyond that, I co-founded the startup Vivo Surgery, which I've taken from an idea to now generating revenue with a wait list of 900 medical students, all without taking a dollar of outside investment. Wow. And could you tell us a little about what that startup does? What we do is we live stream surgeries to medical students and we provide a virtual classroom where students get early exposure to what it's like being in the operating room and they can have real-time conversations with the surgeon while getting that surgeon's point of view. Wow, that sounds fantastic and very, very interesting. That's a, that's a great thing. So go in some detail and give me some examples of how you have used the course material in addition to, of course, being emboldened to get the MBA, which I think you got at the University of Toronto. Is that correct? That's correct. I went to the University of Toronto, Rotman School of Management, and that's where I got my MBA. Okay. So, so besides being emboldened to get the MBA, how else has the ideas from the class helped you accelerate your career inside of IMAX? Absolutely. At its core, I would say the two most important ideas um, for me in my corporate career were your principles around increasing my visibility to people in positions of power and influence and redefining the criteria I was being evaluated with once I got their attention. Yep. Thank you. Uh, it's very important. Uh, visibility, of course, is extraordinarily important. How did you actually go about increasing your visibility? That's an interesting story. Being away from the executive office, one of the channels I had for getting noticed was to get a perfect employee evaluation score. 
It's extremely rare to achieve at a mid-manager level, especially without direct P&L responsibilities. And year over year, I would be discouraged that despite shattering records for the numbers of projects managed and completed, what presumably I am being assessed by, I'd always get curved down to be just shy of perfect. So again, emboldened by your course, I went to my boss and said, I want to get a perfect score this year. Tell me what the bar is so I can surpass it. In other words, I just asked for it. Um, surprisingly, the boss told me he himself didn't know. Rather than conceding to that response, I instead said, okay, can you find out and let's regroup in two weeks so we can come up with a plan. Two weeks later, we met and he had actually made my ambitions known to the HR team. And that led to building a great relationship with my HR partner, who I would meet regularly with, and I worked towards that perfect score with them. And that person essentially became a sponsor to build a case to ensure I wouldn't get curved down in the final room I didn't have access to that that decision was being made in. And I guess just to hammer the point home, it's really about finding sponsors rather than mentors. Sponsors can give you everything mentors can, but are also in positions to open doors for you and source new opportunities for you. That's a great example. Thank you very much for that. The other thing you talked about in using the ideas for the class was redefining the criteria by which you were evaluated. Can you give an example of that? Absolutely. Um, those regular meetings that I had with my HR partner, they became these great opportunities for me to show that I could create value in other areas, not just in operations. And I remember taking the DCF model I learned at Stanford and retooling it to show them I could forecast stock price ranges tied directly to the projects I was working on in operations. That was a way to show them not only that I possess ingenuity, but I had more of a strategic understanding of the bigger picture I played a part in, creating entirely new criteria for them to you know, gauge my performance against. And I have to think that, you know, that not only helped me secure another advocate to ensure I got that perfect score, but also left an impression that I'd be a good fit for the current position I'm in now in investor relations. What a great story. Thank you so much for that. So having talked a little bit about your career and how you've used the course material, I really want to spend the bulk of the time in our uh, podcast today to talk to you about your learnings from being a coach slash course facilitator for this class. You have done this for a number of years. You've done it for a number of different classes. You have really been quite active in this role. And in your interactions with all of these people, you can, I'm sure, have identified, number one, the challenges that they face, and number two, how you have helped them overcome those challenges. So if you would tell us what are the challenges that many of the people exposed to this material face, and how have you helped them work through those challenges? Absolutely. And, you know, my sample size is about 250 executives, Stanford MBA students, and MBB consultants that I've been able to course and course facilitate for. Um, so three things that come to mind as common and big obstacles that we need to overcome together. I'd say the first and always surprising to me is the prevalence of imposter syndrome. Despite obvious achievements to say otherwise, this fear of being found out exists um, among founders, board members, and even C-suite to the point where it becomes doubt 
impedes confidence and slows execution. The second would be around building a capacity to tolerate conflict, something so essential for being an effective leader and ensuring value doesn't get left on the table. Really getting into why people choose to avoid conflict altogether, and in many cases they have good reasons behind it, but it's an inevitability where they want to go, so we have to recondition for it. And then if I had to pick a third one, I would say it's the hang-ups around being agentic towards their own success. Uh, You know, everything from using flattery, uh, engaging in necessary behaviors like self-promoting, making something out of nothing, essentially creating their own luck rather than expecting hard work alone to be recognized and proportionally rewarded by someone else in a position of authority and power. Uh, And as you put it more eloquently, I'd say it's really about getting out of your own way. So how do you help people overcome their imposter syndrome? It's interesting because you've highlighted that one of the seven traits powerful people possess is self-knowledge. This ability to objectively recognize weakness within themselves and organize their environment and interactions favorably to that dynamic. So I've often wondered whether imposter syndrome is an overcorrection from this level of mindfulness to the point where that self-knowledge has shifted to self-doubt. What's the Charles Bukowski quote that says the problem with the world is intelligent people are full of doubt and the foolish ones are full of confidence? Um, With that in mind, the first step is having them acknowledge the reality that people are not paying as much attention to them as they think because people spend more time thinking about themselves than others. Next, I have them reclaim this as a latent superpower. If you're afraid of being found out, you clearly have an idea of what your weaknesses are. So why not proactively take steps to build defenses that mitigate the risks they pose to you? And then lastly, we work on conditioning to show up confidently. A simple exercise I get them to do is really keep a list of five achievements you're most proud of as a reminder of what you're capable of. Then on a monthly basis, striving to update that list because as you do, it becomes something tangible to show yourself that you can deal with the next challenge inevitably to come your way. This list uh, becomes the counterfactual to your imposter syndrome. That's a great and very, very practical suggestion. And you are certainly correct how important confidence is because confidence, as the research shows, is often conflated with competence. So if you do not show up in a competent matter, um, people will often not think that you're very competent. How do you get them to overcome their conflict avoidance issues? That one starts with challenging their perception on the purpose of conflict in business. Generally speaking, we see conflict as unproductive and therefore inefficient. Hence, it's something that that gets treated like it needs to be managed away. Uh, Instead, I view conflict as the starting point for better value creation and value capture. Let me unpack that a little bit. It starts with reframing conflict as not a binary situation where one person wins and the other person loses, but instead a learning opportunity where all parties can create something better than what either position currently offers. Three things that work well here are first to approach criticism with curiosity, so you understand where the divergence lies. Second, to attack ideas and not the people presenting them, something Roger Martin touched on with the integrative thinking methodology. And as you know, people anchor to the positions that they have, so oftentimes it's just as necessary to also give them a chance to save face to ease them away from that position. And third, I encourage the idea of steel manning arguments. 
This is a, a term that was coined by Peter Thiel, and it's the opposite of the straw man fallacy, as here you try to help your opponent communicate their idea more eloquently. And in doing so, you'll better understand their position and perhaps even see the gaps in your own before collaborating on creating something better together. Thank you for that answer. That's also very clear and very practical about how to overcome your conflict issues and how to deal with conflict more constructively, which is a very, very important part of organizational life. And finally, the third barrier that you identified, which I certainly agree with, is they're becoming more agentic with respect to their own career. For 40 years, maybe longer, companies have said to people, you are responsible for your career, which by the way is true, which means that people are responsible and they need to take um, a proactive action if they want to have career success. So what do you do to try to get people to be more agentic with respect to their own life or their organizational life, their own career? Um, so this is like the idea of dressing for the job you want, not the job you have. Um, don't wait for the formal positions of leadership before you start acting and thinking like a leader. Make your own luck. You really have to go out there and find the opportunities for yourself. I'd say the single most important tactic I learned from you was learning how to make something out of nothing. Uh, having this sensitivity to see opportunities in everything and acting on them rather than waiting for permission. I'll give you an example. As part of the Stanford LEAD program, I got access to the Views from the Top speaker series that they would live stream on YouTube. Rather than just watching that alone, I used this as an opportunity to invite five senior leaders to watch that with me live, then debrief on how the lessons learned from that leader speaking would be reconciled with their views on what traits good leaders uh, should have. This not only extended my visibility to more senior leaders, but also set the stage to show I could engage with them at that same altitude of thinking about leading large organizations. And of course, it helps legitimize credibility that I'm doing this with the backdrop of a trusted and credible brand like Stanford. Again, here, I wasn't just sticking to doing the things that were in my job description. That's a great example of leveraging your association with Stanford and bringing people together and using that as an opportunity to both build your brand and leverage off the Stanford brand, but also interact with them in ways that demonstrated your competence. That's a, that is really a, a, an excellent, excellent example. Um, is there anything else that you have learned from your coaching experience that you want to add in terms of uh, lessons learned or obstacles overcome? Uh, absolutely. There's, I, I think, one of the more simpler tactics that people need to get more comfortable with to just get better results is being comfortable with self-promotion. Um, a lot of people look at it as it's dirty. It's something that they don't want to do. Uh, they don't want to stand out and they feel they're going to be judged by their peers poorly for it. But when I engage with executives about the topic of whether they should self-promote, you know, I start by challenging their perceptions around the purpose of self-promotion. Uh, I tell them, you know, we all have skills that if met with the right opportunities, incredible things could happen, especially new value being created from that. But unless the world knows you possess those skills, it becomes this linear 
approach where you have to be the one sourcing all those opportunities for yourself and applying for it. If, on the other hand, you're self-promoting who you are, what your personal brand is all about, you know, those unique skill sets, um, your expertise, the accomplishments you have under your belt, what you've done is just exponentially increased your reach because everyone that hears what you're all about, it's going in the back of their mind that they should be sensitive to opportunities that you would be a good fit for. And when they serendipitously come across those opportunities, it triggers something in them that lets them funnel it back to you. Uh, because again, people like to see themselves helpful and see themselves as benevolent. And while giving leads to opportunities doesn't take a lot, I think everyone feels particularly good to have played a role when someone transacts on that lead. So when you think about it in that way, guided by this principle or this pursuit of value creation, self-promotion is actually a good thing for ensuring impact happens sooner. And I like that answer because it really does speak to the thing that, you know, we always know our own skills and our own interests, but most people are pretty bad mind readers. And so if you, if you want people to know what you're good at, and if you want others to know what you want to do in your job and your career and what the opportunities you're looking for, it's always better to tell them. So thank you very much, Philip Mohaber, for being part of the Pfeffer on Power podcast. You were great. You've been very, very um, helpful and very practical based upon both your own stories and, of course, your experience coaching 250 people uh, through the online version of this class. And it's always a pleasure to see you. Always a pleasure here as well. Thank you so much for having me, Professor Pfeffer. This has been the Pfeffer on Power podcast. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please subscribe and to listen to future episodes with our many interesting guests who are going to talk about how they have used power in to accelerate their own career. And for more information, visit my website at jeffreypfeffer.com. That's Jeffrey p-f-e-f-f-e-r.com and to further your career check out my latest book the seven rules of power available on amazon barnes and noble and bookstores worldwide thank you very much we look forward to seeing you again for another episode 